0: Hebrews 2020. 20, we see Jesus Increment 197. Now, this particular message will indicate a new stage in the development of the homily we call Hebrews. And this and the next increment therefore a forewarning The notes, which we will still have on the website, will not necessarily correspond strictly to the spoken message because I'm going to be winging it on a few things during the next couple of increments because I have some rough-cut ideas on my mind that need to be, well, fine-tuned, refined, developed, So that's just a forewarning. And Father, now we pray that you will make very lucid and very clear that which comes through the stammering lips of your servant. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Among the many Ideas and concepts and insights, hopefully, that we are going to convey in the next couple of increments is This strange title, The Disappearance of the Old Man, The Disappearance of the Old Man And this is just one of many insights that may come up I want to take a look at the remainder of the chapter, meaning Hebrews chapter 7 And slightly into chapter 8, to get a sense of the flow of the homily here, how it's flowing. And we'll include a few preliminary observations, and hopefully convey a couple of insights, depending upon, as always, the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of reality, the spirit of Jesus, who guides us in our study the first thing I want to indicate is from a message that we had recently or an increment we delivered recently from Matthew chapter 8 and how the leprous person approached Jesus when he came down from the hill where he gave the Sermon on the Mount and he said to Jesus if you're willing You can make me clean. And I gave a little more thought to that, especially to the simple answer that Jesus gave him. I am willing. Be clean. Think of a conversation in the heavenlies before the incarnation between the Father and the Son. If you're willing, son, you can make this human race clean for they are afflicted with a far more serious and deadly malady than leprosy, which affects mainly the skin, a malady that goes deep into the heart of man called sin. And we can see Jesus looking to his father and saying, I am willing, I will make them clean, whatever it takes. And that's very important to our Hebrews study because the willingness of Jesus Christ as both the priest and the offering, the priest and the victim in his self-offering is very important. Jesus was obedient to the Father, but his obedience was very willing and a matter of his own willingness. I am willing. And of course, we know the severe test that he came to in Gethsemane when he said, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass by me. If there's another way, to cleanse humanity from this malady other than me drinking this cup. But nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And so I am willing means a whole lot more to me now after I gave a little more thought to the answer that Jesus gave to the leprous man. I am willing, be clean, be regenerated, be justified, be sanctified because I am your righteousness, I am your sanctification, I am your redemption, I am wisdom for you and this is all due to my father's will Jesus is both the priest and the victim the priest and the offering so we want to take again a look at the remainder of chapter 7 and kind of hit it in a small glance and just give a little insight here and there a passing glance And then even go into chapter 8, maybe a little bit, within this and the next increment. and We'll include, hopefully, another insight or two. I think we've already delivered one. 718, this will all be my translation, at least my working translation, until we can refine it a little bit. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment. Because it was weak... And useless. Now here for the word weak. Asthenes in the Greek. We have a correspondence to Galatians. Galatians 4.9. Paul talks about the weak and beggarly elements of the law. Referring to their. The calendar of. Feast days and festivals. New moons. And called that weak and beggarly elements. And. Chided the Galatians for going back and considering the weak and beggarly elements of the law Now the point that is being made here is that there are really two Ways of viewing The law and I think I'll take it this way. I think I'm going to take the in a different direction here slightly pretend this is just a classroom and I came to class and I'm the professor and I'm just kind of teaching off the top of my head. There are several analogies in the scripture that are used in the New Testament and there's several kinds of language that are used. For example, there's military. We have that in the full armor from God, for example, in Ephesians 6.10 through 18. We have... In fact, Paul gives many military analogies. So does the author to Hebrews of Hebrews, and so does Peter, and so does Luke, and throughout the New Testament. Military metaphors, military language. There's also financial language when we talk about, or when the scriptures talk about Jesus being a ransom paid for all and offering himself as that ransom for example there's also judicial language or we could say forensic language and this is used quite often in the scriptures where God is referred to as our judge and in this particular feature judicial language I think Karl Barth had perhaps one of his most central insights and that is that the judge was judged for us God the judge was judged in our behalf but there's also and I couldn't find a better word for this and it's kind of an unfortunate word but it's cultic now we have the word cult obviously and it's negative connotation a weird offshoot a weird group and You can be accused of being a cult if you're not traditional in your expression of Christianity. But cultic actually is a good descriptive word to describe the priests and their offerings, having to do with the sacerdotal. That's another way we could put it, perhaps sacerdotal language. And this is perhaps, again, cultic not having to do with a weird group that takes away your individuality and your free will and all the rest of it we're talking here rather a form of language having to do with priests and offerings and consecration and sanctification and the sacerdotal duties for example of the Judaic and Levitical priesthood cultic language and that is the primary language used in Hebrews because we're dealing with priests and offerings. And the point that Barth makes in a passage that I read in his Church Dogmatics recently, Church Dogmatics Part 4 and 4.1, page 274 to 283, I believe it is, 273 to 283. He deals with the equivalency of the priest and the judge. Jesus Christ is both the judge who is judged for us and the priest who represents all of us, the judge who is judged on our behalf or in our behalf and the priest who represents us. In both cases, we have what the Latin would call a pro-nobis situation, pro nobis or pro nobis, which means for us, for us, God for us. And so there is a kind of a correlation here of judicial forensic language and cultic or sacerdotal language in that Jesus, who is the judge, who is judged for us, all judgment has been given to him by the Father in John 5, 27, 22 to27 really. And he is the righteous judge in 2 Timothy 4, 8, and he is judged on our behalf or judged for us. And also in the cultic sacerdotal language of Leviticus and the language of Judaism and the Levitical priests, we have him as priest, as we're learning now. And as priest, he represents all of us. So to jump A little bit to a conclusion that we need to really kind of move up to gradually when jesus died on the cross when he endured that death on our behalf it was likened to the lamb being consumed the holocaust offering in which the whole offering was burnt a burnt offering Now, when Jesus Christ became the lamb that was consumed, what was consumed in that moment or in that duration of his endurance of the cross was the old man, the old self. When he became sin or was made to be sin, and of course he was willing to be made sin, I am willing. When he was made to be sin, he became, in essence, the old man. And the old man was consumed in his death. In his death, which is likened, in the cultic sense, to a whole burnt offering. Where the whole offering is burnt. And therefore, in his death was the consuming of the old humanity. In fact, the whole old creation was consumed by the fire of God. Our God is a consuming fire. In God's fire, the old man, the old false self, disappears, to use, again, Karl Barth's language. If any of you have that multi-volume series by Karl Barth called Church Dogmatics, I recommend volume 4.1, page 273 to 283, where he deals uniquely with Hebrews, among other things, but that's having read that, that's kind of like what I got from it. Now, let's take a look again at Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak and useless. Now, we know what that previous commandment is. We already discussed it in 7.16. It was the commandment from the law of Moses regarding the genealogical or physical descent of priests a priest became a Levitical priest by the law of physical descent but that law of physical descent is weak and useless you say well how can you say that about a commandment of the law it became weak and useless in light of the power of an indestructible life by which this new and different priest became a priest in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in the light of his forever priesthood, then in that light, the law of genealogical or physical descent became weak and useless. And so it would be certainly redundant, to say the least, and an act of apostasy, to say the most, about anyone who would return to that old system, that abrogated system. And that's what Paul was saying on a different level in Galatians 4. If you return back to the calendar days of the old law, if you turn back to the festivals and you feel like you have to obey certain days of obligation in order to be justified before God, then you're following that which is weak and bankrupt in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, what this all comes down to is that the law itself was incapable of bringing anyone to a perfect relationship with God and of perfecting the worshipers as we've seen. The moral code of the law brought no one to justification before God. That's the idea in Romans. The cultic praxis or the practice of the priests and their offerings under the Levitical system brought no one to sanctification. Hebrews deals with the cultic aspect of the law of Moses bringing no one to sanctification, whereas Romans and Galatians on another level deals with the moral and ritual code bringing no one to justification. The works of the law, no one can be justified by those. Nor can anyone be justified by their personal faith. We're justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who was willing to be the once and for all sacrifice to take away the sin of the world, to cleanse the leprosy of sin, we might say. He was willing. He was a willing offering. With Hebrews 7.18, the inference of the change of the whole law is hinted at, or made more clear, an inference that was made in 7.12 of Hebrews. So with Hebrews 7.18, the inference of the change of the law hinted at in 7.12 is strengthened. With that inference, there's also a hint at the direction in which the arc of the argument is bending. It's bending toward a contrast between the old and the new covenants, which comes up in chapters 8 through 10. And therefore, the superiority of the new covenant, ratified in the blood of Jesus. A covenant of which Jesus is both the mediator, and we've already seen that word in the Greek, he is both the mediator, M-E-S-I-T-A-E-S, Mesites, and the E-G-G-U-O-S, Angoas, Sometimes a double G is an NG in the transliteration. Guarantor, mediator and guarantor. They mean two different things. They are related, but they mean two different things. He becomes the mediator and the guarantor of a new, a better, and an everlasting covenant. Now, Hebrews 7.19 says, For the law, meaning in its cultic praxis, The law here is referring to the specific element of the law of Moses having to do with the priests of the Old Testament, the archpriests on Yom Kippur, the animal sacrifices that they offered. The law, that is the cultic code and praxis and function, made nothing complete. And again we hit the key conceptual idea, or the key concept of Hebrews here, made nothing complete. T-E-L-E-I Omicron-O Omega-O talia For the law made nothing complete. And as I said before, the moral code of the law brought no one to justification before God in the eyes of God. The cultic code of the law with its practices of animal sacrifices brought no one to sanctification. So neither element of the law brought anyone to completion, to a place where they would have a complete relationship with God. We may put it that way. For the law made nothing complete. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope. This word better used 13 times in Hebrews, of course, is also a key word, a catchword in Hebrews. The, there is the introduction of a better hope. We have a better hope, and we can confer here to Hebrews 6 18 to 20, because the thought is continued th- throughout from there. A better hope, which means a superior expectation is something we have we have a superior expectation of drawing near through the blood of jesus christ and his once and for all sacrifice of coming into a meaningful relationship with god the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to god so on the one hand there's the law that can make nothing complete bring no one to justification or sanctification and perfect no one as a worshiper. On the other hand, there's the introduction of a better hope. That means the realization of satisfaction in Jesus Christ, through which we draw near to God. The moral code of the law justified no one. The cultic code sanctified no one. But we're going to find out that the once and for all and forever sacrifice and self offering willing self-offering of Jesus Christ did both it brought us into complete justification in the eyes of God and completely sanctified and perfected us through his one-time offering as we find out well a little bit later down the road in Hebrews 10:10 10, 10:14 10, 10, if you want to look ahead it's okay to peek ahead it's not like you're looking at your christmas presents in the closet before they're put under the tree The law which prescribed animal sacrifices made nothing complete. And here, the verb form of the key conception of Hebrews is deployed again. This is going to be extremely important and bring about a full circle of teaching that for me is over 42 years because this is related to the word tetelestai which we've said many times before means much more than we thought it meant the first time we saw the word in John 19:28 and not John 19:30 what did Jesus mean when he said finished well a lot more than you think and a lot more than i think And a lot more than we can know in this life. Of this idea that the prescribed sacrifices could not bring completion, Karl Barth made the following important observation, and this I've lifted right out of that section I recommended from Church Dogmatics. Quote: An animal is brought and slain, and its blood is shed. But this animal is not the old man which has to be made to disappear. It is not the establishment of that radical and effective and definitive new order in which a man who is righteous before God can encounter the righteous God. It does not accomplish any, and he uses the noun form, which he spells in his rendition here, it does not accomplish any T-E-L-E-I-O-S-A-I, teleose, another form of teleosis, completion or perfection. So I want to begin the quote again. An animal is brought and slain, that's under the old cultic system, and its blood is shed, but this animal is not the old man which has to be made to disappear. It is not the establishment of that radical and effective and definitive new order in which a man who is righteous before God can encounter the righteous God. It does not accomplish any teleose of those who bring the animal. The offering of it is only a shadow of things to come reference to Hebrews 10.1 that is the limitation and problem of sacrifice in the Old Testament what is implied here of course what is strongly inferred in fact is that when Jesus was offered and he offered himself because he's both the priest and the offering and when he fulfilled the type of the holocaust Or the burnt offering that totally consumed the victim. What was being consumed in his death was the old man. The old man was disappearing. The old man was made to disappear. What is most insightful about this observation. Is that the animal offered is not the old man who is made to disappear, therefore. The implication, of course, is that the self-offering, the willing self-offering of Jesus Christ is the disappearing of the old man, the false self that is in every human being except for Jesus Christ. When Jesus became sin. He became the old man. When he, the Lamb of God, was consumed, the old man was consumed. The old humanity disappeared. Why do you think Paul said the old things, all old things have disappeared, passed away in 2 Corinthians 5 17? You think he was kidding in 17, 5.17 of 2 Corinthians? He wasn't kidding. If any man is in Christ, there's the new creation. All the old things, including the old self, have passed away. They've disappeared in Christ. They've disappeared. They disappeared in Christ crucified. So they are not existent in Christ raised from the dead. And that's you've been raised together with him. These truths are too sublime to make clear in English language. The Holy Spirit has to teach them to you. The old things and the old man passed away and all was made new. Now is this reality, capital R, reality, is this reality now made perfectly manifest to us? Is it pellucid, P-E-L-L-U-C-I-D? You say, how do you know that word? It's in my Word of Day calendar. Pellucid means to admit the light perfectly into our stream of consciousness. Do we have this light perfectly admitted to us and received by us? No. But this reality does exist, that disappearance of all old things and the old world under sin and death This reality does exist in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this reality will be fully manifest in his universal appearing. It will be thoroughly pellucid in the new and heavenly Jerusalem. In the appearing of the new man, Jesus Christ, when we are told to put on the new man, we are told to put on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the new man that we put on. For as Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new man. And as Romans 13.14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the appearing of the new man, Jesus Christ, is the disappearing of the old man, the first Adam, and all of ruined humanity in him the last judgment as men traditionally like to call it will be the manifestation of the effect of the passion of Jesus Christ it will be the final disappearing of the old man ruled by sin He will disappear like Enoch and no one will ever find him again. Only he's not like Enoch because he's the old man. In the appearing of Jesus Christ in his second appearance in Hebrews 9.28, he brings salvation. In that appearance is the final disappearing of the old man ruled by sin and the disappearing of the old world ruled by death and by the one who used the fear of death to enslave the human race. So I'll say it again. What is quite profound in Barth is his making equivalent Jesus Christ the judge as the judged in our place and the priest who represented us. It's the same person, it's the same Jesus But it's Jesus as judge and Jesus as priest. As judge, he was judged for us. As priest, he was the offering made as representative of us. So when the lamb was consumed, our old man disappeared. Our old man was consumed. The judge as judged for us is a reality which is expressed with judicial language While the priest who represented us and still does represent us as a priest forever uses sacerdotal or cultic language again not cultic in the sense of belonging to a weird or dangerous religious cult but cultic in the sense of the language of priests and of consecration and public worship especially with regard to Levitical Judaism. If you do a lot of studying You'll find that word cultic used quite often if you study Leviticus or if you study theology in general or if you study Hebrews. Hebrews is unique in this regard. The very fact that the judicial judge judged in our place and the equivalence of the judge with the priest who represents us brings up once again the marriage of Romans and Hebrews. We can see why if... Van Hoy was right. Paul would heartily endorse Hebrews. That Jesus was the representative priest was certainly presupposed in Paul's writings, because in Romans 8:34 he said he was risen, and at the right hand of God he makes intercession for us. And Paul also expressed in cultic language, jesus himself becoming a fragrant aroma and self-sacrifice that was received by god as a fragrant aroma in romans 325 and ephesians 5 2 as well as many references to the blood of jesus christ and equating that with our redemption such as ephesians 1 7 colossians 1 etc So as the Levitical priesthood and commandments regarding the Levitical priesthood that are found in the law of Moses could not complete the people. So the law itself, whether it's the moral or the ritual or the cultic aspect of the law, the law in toto made nothing complete. It wasn't designed to make anything complete. The law was never there so that you could be justified by doing works of the law. That was never the purpose of the law. But the better hope is connected to the mediator, Jesus, the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is someone we've mentioned a whole lot of times, but we're going to get done with mentioning him because... I have an idea for our next increment i'm going to call it it is rocket science over and over again people say well it's not rocket science it's not rocket science it's not rocket science meaning it's not a very difficult science i'm trying to tell you something very simple it's not rocket science as if rocket science is difficult rocket science as far as I understand, isn't as difficult as a lot of other sciences like microbiology or some of the advanced genetic studies of other branches of science. So, how about saying it's not microbiology? But I'm going to, I'm going to twist that saying around and turn it upside down and use an analogy And say it is rocket science we're going to understand Melchizedek's place in Hebrews by an analogy not to the cultic not to the military not to the financial not to the judicial but with an analogy to rocket science stay tuned that will be increment 197 but so far let's, we're pushing through Hebrews, taking a glance at the overall thing here, the overall paragraphs. As the Levitical priesthood commandments regarding which are found in the law of Moses could not complete the people. So the law itself and in its totality made nothing complete. But the better hope is connected to mediator, the mediator Jesus, the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Through whom we draw near, or come close to the enthroned God. And through which, or through whom, we become perfected as worshipers. And, in fact, as an effective kingdom of priests. Why do nations go down? Well, you say they're immoral. People are immoral. Governments are corrupt. That doesn't help nations going down, but I'll tell you why a nation goes down, a nation like America goes down. It doesn't have an effective priesthood within it of believers in Jesus Christ who understand the realities I'm talking to you about right now. And so it's very important that we draw near to God through Jesus Christ and become perfected as worshipers and as an effective kingdom of priests that can represent our family, our friends, our nation in petition and intercession to God. So Hebrews 7.20 takes us all the way back to the oath again, O-A-T-H, oath, which was introduced in Hebrews 6, 16 to 20. Hebrews 7 says, And none of this happened, that is, none of this happened, meaning this new priest wasn't ordained and anointed and perfected and announced by God to be a priest forever. None of this happened without the taking of an oath. None of the priests of the Old Testament were pronounced priests, ordained priests, based on an oath. It goes on to say that. I should have just read the rest of the verse, Hebrews 7, 20b. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath. Verse 21. But on the other hand, he, meaning Jesus, through the oath of one who said to him, The Lord has sworn an oath and will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, if you've been following Hebrews 7, you want to say, after the order of Melchizedek, but after the order of Melchizedek isn't here yet. You know why? A stage of the rocket has been dropped. It's not about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. Melchizedek is a stage of the rocket's propulsion that gets us to this place right here. But from here on in, his name isn't mentioned, but a priest forever is mentioned, and his name is Jesus. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples were all excited about seeing Moses and Elijah and and Jesus. When God was done talking and everything was said by the Father, and the vision at the Mount of Transfiguration was over, who did they see? Jesus alone. And that's what happens here. That's what happens. It is rocket science. And maybe we'll do our next increment based on that. Maybe we'll call it, it is rocket science. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty, which is the fulfilled Torah, the fulfilled Torah of freedom. For there is great freedom when we realize these things. The bringing of these insights is the realization of transcendent truth. And this transcendent truth is about your son, And knowing him is to be free indeed. For that, we thank you. So make this message lucid, if not pellucid, to all the hearers and all the listeners. And may we see Jesus through it more clearly. We ask it in his name. Amen.